Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. so many just cool things about being a church that has such a small footprint here, but such a large one and a growing one elsewhere. I just wanted to uh, let the, the Freemans know that we got a check-in saying, it's the Freemans. Very excited from Mark Bush, who is an elder of a church in Colorado, but he's right now in Cozumel. And so he and the team are watching from Cozumel, and they, they said, oh, hi, it's the Freemans. And it's just, it is so neat to see those connections. And by the way, um, Cassilis, you've been in Divide. That's where the dinosaur museum was that we went to. And once you get Miss Barb in a dinosaur museum, you do not get her out. She had a ball. I really do. I, I, I thought that was amazing. There are... We, we love to sing the old songs, you know, come let us all unite to sing, God is love. Later, what was it, in the 70s perhaps, around campfires people would sing love, 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 the gospel in one word is love. And we, we believe that and we sing it. But there are certain objections that people raise to there being a God of love. And that, a few of them are heard again and again. I, for years, ran a blog called Temp Pegs. And it was all set up on what question would you ask God if you had a chance to ask him a question? And I thought we would run to about 10 or 12, maybe 20. We got up into, what was it? It was um, four or 500 questions before that blog went down. The, the server went down. They called me. They said, the server's failing, we've lost the ability to, re- you know, you've got two hours to grab your stuff. So I didn't grab much stuff. But it was the, the questions most often were around the problem of evil and pain, what theologians call theodicy. Substitutionary atonement, we'll talk about that next week. And this one, hell. We need to talk about hell. Honest people, can read the Bible. And it's very important that you understand that I'm saying this with no sense of irony or uh, a, a sly wink to the side. Honest people can read the Bible and fall into three broad categories. I hate the term, but the term for those that believe that there is a hell, it lasts forever, and that most people will go there and 10 quintillion years from tonight will still be in torture. Those people, by theologians, are called infernalist because they believe in the infernal, which is the word for hell in a lot of um, Spanish, French-type languages, Romance languages. There are annihilationists who believe that you just cease. You're done. And others who are universalists. And all of these have categories. I have been amazed in my life at how unique we are and how wrong it is to assume. I've had pacifist friends my whole life 
Never had more than when we lived in the Detroit area. And I had several pacifist friends, and they disagreed with each other. I won't say violently, because, but they disagreed with each other on what pacifism meant. And I was wrong when I thought I knew what they meant. And so they would correct me, and which is always, always gratefully received, um, because I, I, who would want to say somebody believes or does something that they don't? So I was going, okay. Okay, I get that. I did not know there were these many shades of pacifism. Well, I found that there are shades of about everything. And in these three broad categories, there are, there are different areas. For example, universalist. I've not found a universalist who believes that everybody's going to be saved as in when they die, no matter how evil they were, that God's going to go, oh, come on, you're just so cute, get in here. Uh, all of them that I have found believe that there is a form of remedial punishment, a time of refining, of, as Paul would put it, saved as through the fire. They just believe in different forms and perhaps different lengths. And the reason is that they can all differ and we can have all these different groups is that the Bible is not terribly precise about some things, especially when it comes to those things that are off-site, if I shall say, put it that way, if you are out of the universe, if the universe has collapsed, if God is doing something new, all of our physics is gone. There's no round, there's no fire, there's no molecules. It's, it's hard to speak precise about this. It's rather like, as I used to always say, explaining quantum physics to a cricket. There's a limit how much you're going to get through. Well, I read a much better explanation, a much better example of that this week, where a lady was talking about her dog, saying, my dog, and she loves her dog, knows the cabinet where the food is. The dog knows that if I go to that cabinet, pay attention, food may come. And that all the food it has ever seen has come from this cabinet, evidently not a table person there. The dog even knows that if it bumps its water bowl, it will soon be filled. And they, she goes, now, I can try to explain to the dog what a store is. And I have to go to a store. And then talk about farmers, that they have to grow things, and then the supply chains to get all of this food, but the dog will never get it. All the dog knows is that door. I feel like that's us. We know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And what is behind him, he knows. But our brains are not wired to see it, hear it, get it. So some humility is always called for. One of the earliest memories I have is of me struggling with the concept of eternal, never-ending, trillions of years of horrendous torture for all of those who were evil. We were even given illustrations that I did not know had been borrowed from other preachers many, many decades before. So I'm going to use two of them just to give you a concept of what this six and seven-year-old boy sitting on the pew is hearing. One was saying, imagine the earth is made out of solid steel and you put one ant on the equator and then you make that ant walk around the equator. When that ant has walked around the equator so many times, it has worn a ditch so deep, it splits the earth in two, that will not even be one second in hell. Okay? The other one was, 
a hummingbird, and they said how many times a hummingbird swings beat per minute, second, whatever, but there are different kinds of hummingbirds, so I didn't even have to look it up, just lots. And if you had a hummingbird that took one grain of sand from the earth, and its wings only beat once every thousand years, the time it took to take one, the earth to the moon, one grain of sand at a time, wouldn't even be a second in hell. And I'm sitting there trying to compute this, but it wasn't so much the number, it was the horror. Because we were also told if somebody had just never heard about Jesus at all, that's where they're going. For the crime of never being told. I remember uh, being an adult and Cammy knew I was rattled. We just watched a, a BBC documentary uh, and we were over there. So, uh, And it was about how we get Persian rugs. And it showed the little nomadic tribes that do this. They raise the sheep, they do the dying. And I saw this, these little girls working all day long on these little knots. And knowing that they only come into town once or twice a year. And that their town would not have a Christian in it. Their town would be in Iran. And then remembering all those sermons. And I'm going, how do we, how do we justify this with a God who is love? It seems unjust. It makes the gospel other than good news. Any of you ever been raised in a church where the gospel didn't seem like good news? It seemed wrong. Now, there are those that will say, who are you to judge God? I'm not judging God. I'm doing what God told me to do. I'm wrestling with God. He told, in fact, he even named his people, Israel, those who wrestle with God. Nobody in Israel ever slapped a bumper sticker on their camel that just said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. They wrestled with God. Look at, read the Old Testament. It's a wrestling match. I understood that everybody going to hell was a sinner. Don't get me wrong. I got that. Sinners are made up of horrible sinners like smokers, drinkers, dancers, atheists, card players, Hitler, all the same. And I was assured that anyone who is not in our particular tribe was going as well. People who pick up a guitar and sing, Michael, row the boat ashore. We're not going to make it because our church said you couldn't use a guitar. My thought was, it's not the guitar. It's the vagueness of the lyrics. Why is he rowing ashore? Why does he get his sister involved in this? We have no idea of what the process is. But again, I might not, I might not have been the easiest child to raise. And my mother is fighting a sinus infection or she would be here. And she would tell you that I was the easiest child to read because she's 91 and her grace has cloaked the memories. <laughs> I don't get many amens here. And they always come in the most awkward places. It wasn't until I was in my middle 30s that I found an alternative story. And it made sense then when I read the Bible through that view. And it came from a book that was um, okay for me to read because it was written by a member of my religious tribe. His name was Edward Fudge, and some of you know that name. Edward Fudge was a lawyer, and he was an elder in the Churches of Christ. And he wrote a book called The Fire That Consumes. And I will admit, I had to read it, I think it was three times, to really let it sink 
because he uses a lot of detail and very, very carefully done. And I didn't want to miss any points. And I found each time I read them that I found more points he had made. There's, uh, if you have Netflix, you can watch the movie that was made about this and his coming to this realization. It's called Hell and Mr. Fudge. And it, I have seen it and it is very much worth uh, watching. Edward Fudge even makes a cameo in it, but I won't tell you where. It's just, uh, it's kind of like the Hitchcock always showing up in his movies, I guess. But to have a fellow Church of Christ member and an elder nonetheless to t- that tell me that our traditional teaching was not correct was a wonderful relief. Again, his book is not so easy because he was very studious. And those of you that have ever read anything written by a lawyer know it's going to be very precise. And he was very precise. So I read it. What was it about? It was saying that those who do not know Christ when they die just cease to be. Now, people would say, well, hell is eternal. Yeah, they're eternally gone. It is a destruction forever. But then I came across a survey of Bible translations and text by Gary uh, Amaral. Uh, it's, it, it was an amazing document. It was so meticulous. And he tracks how scholarship is changing the way we translate our Bibles because we're learning that words today don't mean what they meant back then. That should not be a shock to anybody who's even read Shakespeare, and that was just in the 1600s. But what did these words mean to nomadic peoples and subjugated peoples in the Middle East 2,000 years plus ago? And so as he tracked, he, he wrote an article called, Hell is Leaving the Bible Forever, and he puts forever in quotations. He tracks how scholarship is changing the way we use the word hell and even its appearance in the text. The King James Version uses the word 54 times, but the New King James Version only uses it 32 times. The American Standard Version of 1901, which was the accepted text in a church in which I grew up, uh, only uses it 13 times. 54 to 13, what's going on? The NIV uses it 14 times, by the way. Once you leave these versions and you go into like the New American Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version and the like, the word hell doesn't appear. Even when you get, and I know because I've got one, the Zondervan's parallel New Testament in Greek and and English, uh, and it also has a New American Standard and NIV parallel in Greek and English. If you don't know what that means, it means that here's the Greek and underneath is the English. And so you're able to look up and see the words being used. In that big tome, it's massive, the word hell does not occur. Because it was all an English attempt, started with Latin, to be honest. Uh, Augustine, or most usually people call him Augustine, really messed us up on this one. Because he couldn't read Greek, and he worked off Latin, which was a translation of a translation, and he took us down a road. We shouldn't have gone. But the closer we get to understanding how Greek and Hebrew convey meaning, the fewer times the word hell shows up, and that should make us step back a bit. Again, some humility. Because our word means something very different than the text. And I've even had, I've listened, I don't know how many sermons, where they'll say, now Gehenna, is the Valley of Hinnom. You're right so far. 
and that the Valley of Hymnum was a trash heap that burned and burned and the flames never went out. Nope. <laughs> no. That story was made up in the Middle Ages, around 1300, actually. There's, there has been a, um, a little trash there, but there was never anything like what was discussed. It, however, was where, during the time of Jeremiah, people sacrificed their babies to Dagon and to uh, Molech. So God wasn't talking about burning flames. He was talking about him punishing. He was talking about evil. He was talking about something else. By the way, it's not only the word... Uh, by the way, it's not the only word that's disappearing fast. D. Campbell Morgan, who is one of the conservative theologians of our days, known, by the way, his nickname, he didn't give it to himself, is the Prince of Expositors, because the way he could dig into original language and pull out the meaning. And he wrote this, quote, Let me say to Bible students that we must be very careful how to use the word eternity. We have fallen into great error in our constant use of that word. There is, and he capitalizes, no word in the whole book of God corresponding with our, quote, eternal, which as commonly used among us means absolutely without end, end of quote. Here is where something in our history has come back to bite us. Now, not just my tribe, in which I was raised, but in many tribes, there was an anti-intellectualism to the point where Alexander Campbell, one of the, the first leaders of the Churches of Christ, was absolutely opposed to colleges and universities training ministers and would, had written many articles, I've read them, where he would scoff and make fun of pastors or any type of church leader who had a doctor of divinity after his name. And then, later in his life, he started a college and gave degrees in the Bible. So he changed. But there was that anti-intellectualism throughout Protestantism. And you might think, oh, the Catholics got it on us. No, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years where you could be a priest or even a bishop and be illiterate. Because it was just, you were the guy we wanted to put in there for now. And that's hurt us. We often rush to apply the word eternal and forever and without end when we describe the torment of hell, but is that fair? More to the point, is it accurate? Once we know to look for it, we find it's easy. It really is easy to show that the Bible doesn't mean by the use of eternal and forever what we mean when we use those terms. And you don't have to know the, the, the languages. You just have to read with precision and care. You have to pay attention to what you're reading. Once you do, it's there. Now I know saying pay attention sounds like, well then why didn't we see it? I'm actually talking to you like I was talked to by my brother. I, um, my brother who I love dearly, I don't, not an earthly brother, spiritual brother. John was a helicopter pilot in Vietnam got shot down twice, but the second time, the rocket took his face, hit his eyes. He could see on a special computer, but each letter was about like this. After he's out now, his face all wrapped in bandages, under so many surgeries, trying to put something back together there, 
he went to law school. And I said, John, how did you go to Capital University Law School? We didn't even have cassette tapes back then. How did you, how did you do this? John had a way of speaking, and everybody now up in Rochester, Detroit, everybody now knows exactly when I say it this way, that that's the way he talks. He, was, he said, Patrick, you pay attention. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that was my guess. And he, he became, he worked for presidents. I mean, it, just amazing. He, he and I would go out for lunch every so often. He'd call me and ask if I'd like to go, and I'd say yes. He'd tell me where to pick him up. He'd be standing there, and I'd drive up, and uh, he'd say, um, I'll let you drive. <laughs> yeah, you will. <laughs> yes, you will. What, a, what a ma an amazing man. I've been blessed to know. But I went back and applied that to Scripture. In Jude 7, Sodom's fiery judgment is eternal until God restores the fortunes of Sodom. Did you know that verse is in Scripture? It's not in Jude 7, it's in Ezekiel 16, verses 53 through 55, that God would restore the fortunes of Sodom. Huh. Now, by the way, is that a contradiction then? No, they use the words different than we use the words different. It looks like a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. They knew each other's work. Well, Jude no, knew Ezekiel's work. Ammon, A-M-M-O-N, According to the scripture, Zephaniah 2.9, will be a wasteland forever and rise no more, Jeremiah 25.27. Until Jeremiah 49, verse 6 says, God will, quote, see if this sounds familiar now, restore the fortunes of the Ammonites. Both of them, just gone. And I think most of us, I think I can speak for most of us, are pretty surprised when we come across the phrase, later, God will restore their fortunes. Remember last week we talked about how the Moabites could not enter the temple forever until the 10th generation. That sentence doesn't work in English. But it works perfectly fine in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and the early languages of the time, Gothic, Latin, until we get up to a, much later. It is a comparative term, and I brought it up last time. It's like the word tall. We understand that a tall man is not as tall as a tall building. We understand that's not the same as a tall order. We always look at what does the word eternity refer to, and then go look and see what else the scripture says. For example, in Habakkuk, uh, it looks like Habakkuk, and go ahead and pronounce it that way if you want to. Uh, chapter 3, verse 6, the mountains that were everlasting are now shattered. What was everlasting is now shattered. You don't need to know Greek and Hebrew. You can see it. The Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood that comes from the line of Aaron, was to be an everlasting priesthood, and yet in Hebrews 7, it was replaced by the priesthood of Melchizedek. The law of Moses tells us, Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 8, that the law of Moses is an everlasting covenant, and yet the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Verses 11 and forward tell us that God did away and abolished that covenant that was to last forever. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8 and verse 13, he said he made the first old and brought in the new. There are dozens 
and dozens more examples. And we could do this more, but I hope you are seeing that we need to step back from all those sermons that terrified so many little kids. And from the story that most of our neighbors think we believe. And we need to start looking at scripture more carefully. Remember that Jesus himself, in one of the passages that has made my head spin since I can remember, Luke 12, 47, 28. We read it last week. Jesus says that some servants will receive few, some wicked servants will receive few stripes, in other words, be hit a few times, while some many. Now let's get past our modern day aversion and abhorrence of beating a servant because that's not what it's about and it's not saying it's okay to beat them. He was talking about hell. He even brings up the word for punishment there. But he says it won't be the same for everybody. And that's an amazing thing. In our own lives, we should know this. There are no things that one size fits all. I don't care what Walmart says. It doesn't. There are no games that are fun for the whole family. No. <laughs> there are no books or movies that everybody will love. And there's not a one size fits all for punishment. By the way, Jesus also indicates that there's not a one size fits all for glory in heaven. And I'm not sure how that works either. And I don't care. If your room's bigger than my room in heaven, I, I don't care. And yet, we miss those passages. So, is hell eternal? Well, if you mean hell as a fiery lake, probably, but that seems to be a metaphor. I would also add, while it might be eternal, those who are lost are not. Because only those given the gift of eternal life have eternal life. And only the faithful get eternal life. And eventually, there may be other, we'll talk more next week. This isn't, a, this isn't a one sermon fits all. I don't see evidence in scripture that God's plan is them, for them to exist forever screaming in eternal torment. And I certainly disagree with Augustine and John Calvin who said that they'll even set up booths so that we can lean over from heaven and watch the torture because it makes our glory even feel better. How horrible a person would you have to be to come up with this and then apply it to a God who when he does show up on earth, what does he say? Peace on earth. Goodwill toward men. Whosoever will may come. I'm not willing that any should perish. Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. For God so loved the world. Wow. I don't know what the punishment looks like. I believe that this is, I believe you can trace this back. I've done a lot of work on it, but I can't say 100%. That this is where Roman Catholics and the Orthodox churches have done so much work with purgatory. Trying to figure out what does that cleansing state look like. I don't think we have any clue. It might be instantaneous. It might take forever. I've wondered what hell would be like for me. And ruling out the, the metaphors. You know, of uh, flame and, and being bound and, dr and darkness. I think for me, it would be to be sat there somewhere where I could not move and inside to feel every hurt I've ever caused anyone. 
that would be, I'm almost not even talk here, that would be beyond flames. And however long that would take to feel the depth of it. And if I heard a parent who then heard a child in return, I got to feel that throughout history. And then be confronted with the reality that sin is not fun and it is not neutral. It is a crime against God. And see God then offering forgiveness. I wouldn't be the same person coming out of the punishment that I was going in. And I think for some people, it might take longer than others. I'm not one of those that thinks, ah, it won't be long, let's go. I, I don't know. By the way, that's a, there's no scripture support for what I just said. But I've been wondering, what is colossus, which is the word punishment, which is always remedial, in other words, to bring you back into the fold, and always limited. And that's the word used in Hebrew, and I'm, and in, I'm sorry, in Greek. In Hebrew, it's olam. Yeah. The eternal word always meant in scripture until God's done with, until that has been fulfilled. It uses a far more elastic version. Think of it this way. When, when, you, when you ask your wife or your kid, or are, are you ready? And they say, in a minute. You don't think 60 seconds, do you? That would be wrong. If my wife says, come on down, and I said, give me a minute to finish this page, I don't mean a minute. I mean to finish this page. We'll say, you know, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. They do in France. I don't get that. I, um, I, I, I know I'm not that hungry. I, of course I could be. It's kind of like the old story about a man who fed his dog turnip greens. And a neighbor goes, how'd you get your, my dog won't eat turnip greens. He goes, this one didn't either. The first week and a half. You know, it's, we use terms elastically the other day. What does that mean? It means nothing, actually, but we all understand what it means, kind of. Scripture was not written in lawyeries. It was written in the language of the people who wrote it. And with their hyperbole and synecdoche, that's an overstatement and an understatement, the Bible says forever in, in hell, but also says forever in heaven. And that terrifies people. That one's get brought up to me before, and they'll say, well, then heaven will be temporary. No, you're not listening it's until God's done. God wants to live with you. Look at everything he has done to try to live with you. Do you think he's going to, after a while, go, well, it was fun. Party's over? Of course not. Those being punished will be punished until God's purpose is fulfilled. And God's not willing that any should perish. And in heaven, the will of God is plainly stated in Scripture. That Jesus came to save the world, not to condemn it. And we will stay with our God. Until he wants us elsewhere. Now, I don't think he's going to want us elsewhere, but Jesus also says something else that boggles my brain and I can't get around it and I cannot explain it. And if it, by the way, if anybody tells you they can't explain it, nod, smile, walk away. When he said, if you are faithful over a few things, I will make you rulers over many. I see the pictures that the web telescope sends back and I'm going... Am I going to go work out there somewhere? What is God teaching us, getting us ready to do? The Bible and some old gospel songs. I love old songs. I don't know if you've noticed. I've collected them over the years. Old gospel songs and spirituals talk about 12 gates to the city. Hallelujah. I love that. 
Do you believe in a literal gate? Do you believe that God imported pearls and made gates out of, let's face it, pearls are the byproduct of waste in an oyster? Or do you think God was being descriptive? Metaphors. Do you think when he used gold and all those jewels that he was saying he's actually going to recreate the geology of the earth? Or do you think he was trying to tell us it's so beautiful? It is so wonderful. You got to change your life so that you can be here and love and enjoy this. When I talked about some people might have better heavens than others, I think of people, and I'm not going to use last names because she has long passed on before I ever asked permission. Dear sweet lady in West Virginia named Phyllis. She'd lost her husband in the mines years before. She's one of the mine widows we had. She was on a terribly small stipend. And yet, I never saw her have a bad day. Every time she'd walk in, I'd say, how you doing, Phyllis? She goes, I am so blessed. And she would have said that if a leg fell off on the way in. She was astounding. And I would tell her every so often, Phyllis, I need to have more faith like you. And she'd go, oh, no, you don't. You're, everybody's got this. I'm, she just didn't know. By the way, the, I don't know, nine years I was there, I had to preach in a different way. Because you could not ask open-ended questions. You know, so should we believe God or the world? God! She would yell out the answer every time. <laughs> I guarantee you, in my feeble little brain, and besides, remember, all I'm seeing is the door where the food is. I don't know everything. But I think she's going to enjoy heaven more than I do. Because she wrapped her whole life, everything, in faith, woke up every morning looking forward to it. So maybe I need to be more like Phyllis. So, what exactly happens to those who are being punished? And for how long? You know, we will talk more about that next week. But for now, remember, we do serve a God of love. And we are made in his image. And if you're uncomfortable with 99.99% of, of the world burning forever, good. Because we're made in his image. And I believe... I'm, I'm just not convinced of an eternal hell in the words that we use, in the way we use the words eternal. And I'm going to be a little offensive here to some, and I don't mean to be. It is a gift of mine, I'm aware. But I don't think you believe in it either. I don't believe I've ever met anybody who believed in it. Because if they did, they would day and night with tears be knocking on their neighbor's door, tearing their garments. They wouldn't save a penny. They would spend it all to get to the next neighbor. They would wear their bodies and minds out, screaming and crying to get people in. I can remember being in a mall just north of Detroit, and it was, it was amazing to me how diverse Detroit was. I really enjoyed it. You would see Southeast Asians of, of many different nations and then you would see African-Americans, and then you'd see Africans, and then you'd see white people of all kinds of difference, and it, all right there. And I talked to a preacher friend of mine who's a good, who is a good man. And I said, I want our churches to look like that mall. 
And he's talked about, he went up there to walk too. Because in Michigan, if you, they have two con, uh, seasons, winter and construction. So he, he said he, he liked to walk there too. He says, but every time I look, I wonder if I'm looking into the faces of the damned. Why would God design a system like that? And if you really believed it, why are you walking and not grabbing them and screaming in tears to convince them to safety? If you truly believed it, you'd act different than you do. But what we do act like in most churches is to get people into our system, our beliefs, and that trumps our fear of their being lost. There are churches that won't let in a divorced and remarried person because that doesn't gel with our doctrine. Wait a minute, we're, we're trying to avoid eternity of hell and you're going to hang up people on these things? Wouldn't you bring them in and just hope for the best? But no, we must be precise in our system. Then you don't believe in this or you're the most callous individual I've ever met. How could you explain through your sobs that our God is a God of love and Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And that their righteousness, according to Jesus, will never be able to save us. That our righteousness is as filthy rags. Well then, what does save us? The same thing that's going to save the people that I don't like much. Grace. And love. Next week, we'll look at the scriptures and the questions raised when we speak of a limited time of punishment. Because there are some. And it doesn't mean you hold your questions, guys. If you're, so far, you've not had an issue not holding your questions. And that's fine. Fire them off. Patrick at rsafeharbor.com. And be aware that you can be a member of Our Safe Harbor and not believe what I'm saying. Because that's not what we do here. We throw open the door and just say, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. We are your heart. We're going to pump out Jesus to you. But you're allowed to use your own brain. I guarantee you there are going to be a lot of us in heaven look over and go, huh, they made it. <laughs> and if you look over in heaven and you're surprised they made it and you see five or six people looking at you with their jaws dropped, it's you. It's you. But today, let's let it lie. With just a song of praise. Just thanking God for giving us the universe he did and for the love he's already shown us. I love the old song, the old songs. And one of these is fairest Lord Jesus. <laughs>